0: Hi, I'm Jana, a student from University Malaya. And I'm Tess, a teacher in Shah Alam. We're part of the podcast team at Clima Action Malaysia, and you're listening to Alama, a podcast dedicated to talking about climate emergency in Malaysia. We're part of Kami's ongoing efforts to raise awareness and create conversations surrounding climate change. Clima
1: Action Malaysia, better known as KAMI, is a grassroots climate movement led by Malaysian youths based on the principles of climate justice. KAMI facilitates diverse civil society groups in understanding climate impacts to mobilise the declaration of climate
0: emergency in Malaysia. Alright, how have you been Tess? How's everyone? How's your family doing?
1: Oh everyone's okay, I've been good, Uh, just worried about the fourth wave coming in. How
0: have you been? i've been great um, i've been inspired lately by kami's participation in the global climate strike it featured kami members striking in front of the national monument or tugunegara malaysia as we call it and i saw the pictures everybody will um everybody was like uh in the circle and i thought it was very nice
1: i saw those pictures too i thought it was awesome You're right. yeah so in the spirit of climate strikes and earth day we'll talk a little bit about climate scene in malaysia and climate negotiations our guest today is evelyn tay a senior researcher at third world network at third world network she co-produces climate top reports for negotiators think tanks and civil societies at the unfccc Third World Network is an independent international research and advocacy organization involved in issues related to developing
0: countries. When we were editing this podcast, we realized that it's important to have context. So we've put together a cheat sheet for you. What is Paris Agreement? Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty on climate change. Its goal is to limit the increase in global average temperature within 1.5 to 2 degrees.
1: Now, the way it works is that countries submit their plans on tackling climate change. These plans are known as nationally determined contributions, or better known as NDCs. The way that these countries support each other is through um, capacity building, through sharing of tech, and also financially.
0: All right, now, what is the COP or COP? Basically, COP is conference of parties uh, where a bunch of countries come together and negotiate about climate change. Uh, its role is to review implementation of the convention and assess the measures taken by countries and progress made. Now that you're all caught
1: up on the cheat sheet, sit back and enjoy the podcast.
0: Okay, we're going to start now. Okay. Hi, Evelyn. How are you? How have you been doing? Hello. Hi, Jenna. I've been doing great. Thank you. All right, uh, we hope everybody everybody's who's watching right now is doing okay. So um, without further ado, we're just going to go straight into our first question. So um, okay, today, as we know, our topic will be on climate negotiations. For our listeners and for myself, honestly, can you talk to us first about what exactly is climate negotiations? What does it mean and who are we actually negotiating against? All
2: right, thank you for the question. Well, the climate negotiation... Uh, refers to the COP meetings, and or we call it COP meetings. And COP stands for the Conference of the Parties. So the COP is the supreme decision-making body of the convention. So you ask, what is the convention? So the convention refers to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Or you always hear this UNFCCC. So hey. if you right uh those count of the numbers of c you say unf triple c so uh, it's a multilateral treaty that came into force back in 1994. so all states or countries that are parties um, or rather we call it members to the convention are represented at the COP meetings or now we are popularly referring it to climate negotiations or climate summit so over there, they review the implementation of the Convention and any other legal instruments that the COP adopts, such as the popular Paris Agreement in 2015. So at the COP meetings, the parties also take decisions necessary to promote effective implementation of the Convention, including institutional and administrative arrangements. So every year, a country representing a region, be it EU, South America, Asia, Africa, etc. Will become the COP presidency. So, this year, the COP presidency is the UK. So, they, are, they will be hosting the COP meeting this year. The UNFCCC Secretariat will assist the COP presidency to organize typically a two week climate summit from the matter of you know, registration, logistics, preparation of the agendas of meetings, and all the documents needed by governments and observers.
0: Alright, okay. Um, uh, thank you for the explanation. So, basically, uh, as you call it COP, yeah? COP is uh, like an agreement or uh, a conference la, where all the countries involved come together and discuss about climate change and what we do with it. Yes.
2: So, mm. it's an agreement that everyone has a say. So, the mm. process of which
0: uh, has to be very uh, inclusive
2: and transparent.
0: We actually have a question for you that is actually not included in the questions, but it's something that I'm just like um, curious about. Can I ask it now? Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so we were talking about how uh, these countries uh, signed the agreement, right, through the climate negotiations, but who will actually hold them accountable? Like, who monitor this and who actually makes sure that they reach the goals that they say they were going to commit?
2: So it is a legally binding agreement. Mm-hmm. And um, the process and the progress to which the countries are undertaking is being reported uh, at the UNFCCC. But at the same time, uh, there isn't like, you'd imagine like in an international court, right, to bring country uh, to, to answer to anything that they have promised that they have not done. So there's no such an instrument as well. So, um, Evelyn,
1: Uh, We understand, I think we have a better understanding now on what COP means and what these climate negotiations look like. But in terms of... you know, where these climate negotiations have been going? And, uh, you know, what do past patterns and decisions look like? Is there a positive impact? And what role does Malaysia play in terms of these climate negotiations? Do we have a large enough say? Um, What are we doing here?
2: The multilateral negotiations between different countries are by nature very intensive because it involves multiple actors and interests, highly complex agendas, and often differentiated responsibilities between the developed and developing countries. And these negotiations also have right. varying legal implications. And um, we're taking a soft law approach without enforcement mechanism, while others take a hard law approach with the prospect of sanctions for non-compliance, like some um, international treaties like human rights right so negotiating international agreements as i said it involves multi-level political processes and it often involves treaties that are agreed upon or participated in by three or more parties but partic- especially um, governments of different countries um, so it could be a matter on trade human rights international security development and the environment and of course climate change so where the environment is concerned perhaps uh, some of the notable ones uh, includes the convention of biological diversity or the cbd and the UNFCCC right. and the paris agreement yeah which malaysia is part of so um, whether or not these negotiations really work and where they are going, um, I do wish there is a simple answer to this because it is a popular question. There is a sense of rising frustration about where these negotiations really bring us to. I mean, this year we are looking at COP26, right? right? It's been 26 years, likely you know, <laughs> longer than it has than some of us who have been just born right some of you not even 25 yes so yeah that's the thing and I, and I think it, it does linger around in people's mind because these COP attract a lot of media attention every year so we're like thinking what are they right. talking about and why is the world still burning right so where there is a global problem like climate change there is a need for global responses Hence, uh, there is a need for international agreements. However, we perceive it that mm-hmm. it works or not, but it helps to regulate. Or, in fact, is the only way to is the only way to regulate the behavior of governments. National responses alone really is insufficient. So, whether negotiation works or not depends on the power play between the powerful and the well-oiled Western nations and developing countries which are often not as strong and are quite weak with varying capacities among them. So often it is big corporate interests who are behind the developed countries who try to shape the rules in the international processes. So right. if you um, have a chance to attend one of the COP negotiations and when they have a lot of side events, you'll, you'll see quite a prominent corporate presence over there. So to counter this, we need strong civil society groups and management and sorry, and movements to challenge the powers that be and also hold their governments to account. So this is where um, the institution which I work with, the World Network um, operates in. So in the attempt to answer this uh, very good question of whether the negotiations (laughs) really work is to first understand the purpose of the negotiation and the processes right. under which they are bound under. yeah. So the purpose of the negotiation is often very straightforward. Save the world from climate change. But <laughs> <laughs> the processes are not quite so. So in most uh, multilateral negotiations, diplomats must be aware of how these negotiated mm-hmm. agreements can affect the existing policy architecture in our respective countries. So, Multilateral agreement do not only succeed or fail on its own terms. That means it is not about what happened behind those doors and within those walls. But it also goes according to how it affects the broader regime in which is, it is embedded. So by and large, negotiators make two important choices about the type of agreement they mm-hmm. aim to design, the breadth and the depth of the agreement they want to achieve. So if I could go quickly in terms of breath, an agreement can be narrowly focused on resolving a small number of problems, even though those are major issues as in the Montreal Protocol, which narrowly focus on the big problem of reducing ozone depleting CFCs. But alternatively, it can be broadly focused on a number of interrelated issues to bring about Mm -hmm. wide-ranging changes, systemic changes. So climate change may seem like a narrow focus, but it's actually not. It actually is about negotiating a country's economic future as emissions, especially in developing countries, are tied directly to their development pathway. So for many of these transformation of the economy, it will need trillions of dollars, massive technologies and capacities that many developing countries just do not have to leapfrog into right. those cleaner future, right? So there's a lot mm-hmm. of negotiation going on on that. But in terms of the death, uh, just... Mm-hmm to give the death and the breath um, aspect of it. So governments can also aim for a shallow accord, a shallow agreement that places relatively light obligations on state and thus comparatively much easier to implement. Or they can go for deep agreements that involve significant obligations. For instance, in the Paris Agreement, the responsibilities between the developed and developing countries are differentiated. With the developed world needing to take the lead in emissions reductions much more than the developing countries and in the provision of means they have to give finance, technology transfer and capacity building to developing countries so to enable them to leapfrog into the low emission pathway as soon as possible. And I think some of you would already know about historical responsibility, the historical emissions. That developed countries mm-hmm. have as uh, which causes the warming today is a result of their historical emissions since the Industrial Revolution. So without such agreements, the developer will not have any commitments to do what they must do after they have emitted so much. So broad agreements can be problematically shallow in their impact, but they are quick to, you know, they are quick to be resolved. The convergence is fast because it's shallow. But uh such as core UN human rights treaties, for example, they cover significant ground in outlining appropriate standards on human rights. But these agreements appear to have little impact to bring about in the country state behavior in the hardest cases. Narrow but deep accords can have focused impacts. So um I'm sorry I'm taking a long time <laughs> to, to, no, to no. explain this but I, I think um, maybe for the benefit of the viewers uh, I mean sorry the listeners um, it's just to provide some context so going back to the question of whether mm-hmm. the UNFCCC negotiation really worked we really need to understand whether it has achieved what it set out to do and what are the challenges and contestation that are getting in the way so right. Hmm. So what I can say is that multilateral negotiation, although it is wrought with various challenges and shortcomings, it is still the only platform where global cooperation takes place with legal effect. So there's now you're asking me a question about whether there's any legal accountability to this. Um, so UNFCCC is a platform where countries are held accountable. So without this, each country is free to do whatever they want and whatever they like, which have global impacts, for better or worse. So in the context of Climate Summit, what it delivers at the end of each COP also depends on the COP Presidency and the UNFCCC Secretariat. So like I said earlier, the COP Presidency is like the host of the COP that year. So how they manage the climate summit from the aspect of transparency and inclusiveness as an honest broker is so fundamental. So poor negotiation management can contribute to a collapse of negotiation, which happened in Copenhagen in and the uh, yeah, Copenhagen, which is COP twenty-five. So this summit either completely failed to reach an agreement or reach a political agreement that is not accepted by all parties. So, I mean, if you guys want me to go deep into the failure of COP15, I could tell you why it didn't work. So, it gives an impression <laughs> from the outside. It's like, oh, another negotiation that didn't work. Why are we wasting time flying people in there? We spent two weeks there and so much of public funding going in there. So, yeah. Do, do you guys really want to hear the story of COP15?
0: Why not? I think that would be interesting. Yeah. Okay. So,
2: COP15 is well-known... <laughs> kind of, to be a very contested COP. And it was, the, it was in... The presidency didn't play the role of an honest broker. So it failed to deliver a final complete agreement because the presidency of the co- conference and the Western political parties essentially tried to hijack the process um, even before the COP and during the conference itself. So it was the intention of the Copenhagen conference chairman, which is the Danish prime minister. He gathered around a small group of leaders to reach an agreement and then to ram it through the conference of parties, giving the full membership little time to consider the document at all. So the decisions at the COP were made by consensus, by right, and objections from several developing countries because that process was so undemocratic and that um, the COP only took note of the document and did not adopt it, i say. So one thing important to, to know about the COP is that the language is quite, um, it bears meaning, every word bears meaning legally speaking. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm also learning. So when, when a decision is being taken note of, which means took note of. That The document is given a very low status. That means it it doesn't really have any effect. So it means that the meeting did not approve or pass it or did not view it either positively or negatively. And the non-adoption of that document that the Danish Prime Minister tried to push through with only 26 leaders in the room when there's 193 members in the UNF Triversy So it was of course objected by the developing countries because it's so unfair and non-inclusive but unfortunately um, it was being projected in the western media by western leaders and many commentators that a good deal has been blocked by some developing countries uh, where some are blaming China for you know uh, the the, for the why they should have that small meeting without the rest of the people and all that so Again, going back to the COP, it's quite political as well. Um, aside from the technical issues, there is always a political constant contestation between those who are powerful and those who are, you know, not not so uh, have uh, that kind of power play. The power dynamics is very imbalanced. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Right. Yeah, I actually have I have a few questions about that, but we, we can save that for um, a different time, a different day. Um okay, I think we can go on to the next question now. Okay, going back to Malaysia's role in climate negotiations and you know you mentioned just now whether it actually works or not, and it's it's actually much more complicated than it is. Um if I'm not mistaken, uh, for the Paris Agreement, Malaysia committed to Malaysia committed to reducing 45% of our greenhouse gases by, uh, by 2030, right? So, um, talking about Malaysia's role and all that, how far along are we to actually achieving these goals? Uh, and are, would you say that Malaysia is doing uh, our best to commit to achieving this, um, you know, our commitments?
2: I wish there was a report card that Malaysians have made that monitors um, Malaysia's commitment in the national determined contributions uh, because every few years they have to update it. And you're right. So the 45% uh, commitment to reduce emissions by 2030 is a breakdown of two parts, right? Um, One of it, of course, is uh, unconditional, meaning they can reduce as much as they can by their own, while 10% of it is conditional, where Malaysia expects to receive international finance, tech transfer and capacity building to achieve that 10%. So I think recently we were reported that Malaysia carbon emissions has increased by 33% uh, in the latest reporting. And most of it are coming from energy consumption, such as the power generation and transportation. So in terms of whether Malaysia is doing enough, I think clearly the energy sector should come into sharp focus um, in that Malaysia should really rapidly scale up renewable energy. And uh, also to revolutionise, if I can use that word, um, our transportation system, right? Uh, Because right now we have such a high car, private car ownership I think possibly some of the highest in the world today and the thing is if we continue on this trajectory um, we, are, we are set to burn more fossil fuel and people normally do not really realize their own impacts in terms of you no know, something as simple and something that you do everyday mobility so it feels like you're a trap but i i feel that At the same time, the government should roll out a more holistic plan that we all can see that we all can judge whether they are doing enough in this sector and then another sector, of course, is waste management and we do have a lot of. uh, Waste that we do not recycle well and it's not just the fault of people not separating their waste of using excessive plastics and all that, but it's just by way of how things are being packaged. Like it should start from the design of the packaging itself, that we should move away from single-use plastics already. And if we do that, we are also reducing fossil fuel because plastic is made of oil. So, and then of course we reduce the, the you know, pressure on recycling. And all Malaysia is also well known in the world for being that place where we receive all the recycling waste that nobody wants. <laughs> And Mm -hmm. it's become a crime. It's become an international crime. So again, like when you see how Malaysia could take on such a complex role, um, I do wish I know exactly how much Malaysia is doing. Because sometimes the government are doing things which they do not, you know, uh, disclose to us. And then of course, um, we also get to know a few things here and there. So I I feel there needs to be a transparent um, in terms of that kind of knowledge exchange. in So so the clear example is like, Malaysians in general, their climate change awareness is quite low. In fact, very low. So recently when our environment and water minister, you know, responding to the letter, or rather responding to why we are not, Malaysia is not invited to the US climate summit, the, the thing that grabbed the headline was Malaysia is not a vulnerable country to climate change. Mm. So, it feels like that that moment for him to really have the narrative in saying what Malaysia is doing has been overshadowed by the fact that he says Malaysia is not vulnerable to climate change. So, again, this this is like, I, I know the question is whether Malaysia is doing enough based on our you know commitment to reduce, but I'm, I'm trying to connect the different parts and how they all are moving parts but of the same uh, you know Mm. goal I don't know if I answered your
0: question yeah I think from the start of what uh, from what you've told me just now um, things seem to be a bit indefinite I would say Um, yeah and going back to that uh you know, the, how indefinite it is, um, and pretty much vague to me right now. It sounds a bit vague what the government is doing, what Malaysia is, the efforts that Malaysia is putting to actually commit to the goals that we have. Um, the, a question that I want to ask, <laughs> I've been wanting to ask this since uh, this morning, who will actually hold Malaysia accountable, or any other country, for that matter, to make sure that we are all um, on track to achieve the goals that we say we we're going to achieve.
2: So if you, just now you quoted the, the goal of Malaysia which is written in a nationally determined contribution and there's a reason why it's called nationally determined contributions um, and it's under the Paris Agreement. Sorry for, for going to the policy and UNFCCC again but I think this is important to, to, to set the context. So basically uh, what it means is that the commitment that Malaysia put up or any country that is party to the, to the Paris Agreement is based on what they can do in, in their own context. Mm-hmm. So when you ask who's going to um, you know, keep them accountable, which country is supposed to keep them, there's no country that does that. So, so basically everyone do what they can. And with that, for the lack of, and, and under the legal framework, which is the UNFCCC, every country is obligated to play their role because it's out there for people to see. And whether or not there's like a very structured way of how they are being kept accountable, that I'm not entirely sure. But of course, you can read news and see that if Japan said that they will go carbon neutral by this X number of years, and then you see them opening more new coal plants, then you know they are not going the direction that they want to.
0: Mm. And then
2: you have the international CSOs, you know, um, bringing that to light, including the old local Japanese CSOs, even Malaysia as well. So one thing I feel that in terms of accountability, every citizen in their respective country keeps their government accountable. You pressure them from the bottom up, and which is why it's so important to mainstream climate change news to 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 make it. Um, a public conversation and not just very inclusive to only CSOs and bureaucrats and policy makers. It has to go down to the everyday people um, to want the government to be accountable to what they have committed. So um, there is no like, you know, a group of countries that would monitor the rest of the countries to make sure that they are doing their job. That is not the spirit of a multilateral agreement. Yeah.
0: I like that answer. I think um uh, it's very important for us to remind ourselves how important it is our individual actions and efforts are. So um yeah, I really like that uh the answer. Uh we have one one more question. Tess? Yeah. So this is
1: about COP26, uh 26 again. So knowing that, you know, COP uh has failed before. There have been instances where countries have just not been able to reach an agreement. Do you think that is something that might happen this year? Um, What kind of outcomes are we looking at?
2: So as far as COP26 is concerned, there are a few substantive decisions that needed to be made. In order to implement the Paris Agreement, such as um, the agenda item on Article 6, which relates to a cooperative approach. Right. It's um, basically meaning market and non-market mechanism. And the common time frame for nationally determined contributions, um, and then adopting required transparency tables and formats this year. So this includes launching the opera- operationalization of the global goal on adaptation and climate finance. So all these are some of the key agenda items that will be um, negotiated in COP26. So it really depends on, because there is an, a new, <laughs> I wouldn't say a new, um, of course, US has kind of like rejoined the Paris Agreement. So the dynamics is going to change again, um, or maybe you know having a more stronger having a stronger presence over there so that lends into the whole um, negotiation power dynamics as well and I'm not right. too sure if I could forecast whether it would succeed or fail but um, it, it is in in everyone's interest uh, in every country's interest to get some of these agenda items agreed sort upon it. Yes. right.
1: In terms of that then, um, again, what do we want for Malaysia? What do we want our countries to achieve out of these negotiations?
2: I think it's key and important for Malaysia to, well, maybe I should explain a bit more. Malaysia don't really negotiate as a country. right? So in COP, countries negotiate as blocks. So okay. blocks, yeah, blocks can be like the umbrella group. Could be the like-minded developing countries. Could be, uh, the basic which is Brazil, uh, China, and a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they speak as a block. So Malaysia um have to align with their block with its block to come with a consensus of what they can, uh, what they want to push for. And what, they, what are their hard lines? What are the red lines that they cannot compromise? So Malaysia is under yeah. the G77 and China. And to an extent, it was, or maybe still is, under the light minded developing group. So um, these G77 and China and like-minded developing group, or consists of the largest, well, it re- they represent the, the largest population around the world compared to all other blocs. So in a way, the, their voice and their, their stand, uh, whatever they bring up to the negotiation, carries a lot of weight. So that might
1: work out for
2: us, depending <laughs> on whether
1: we agree with this block.
2: That's right. So if Malaysia do, I mean, I'm not too sure how active Malaysia, um, because there are a lot of countries in the blocks, right? So some countries are more vocal than others. So, but then I, what I understand about blocks is that um, there's no agreement until everyone agrees. So how it happens is that if let's say the block has ten countries, even if one country disagrees on something, the the block will not say anything about it. So there's no consensus, but each country okay. is free to say whatever they want individually. So whether or not Malaysia wants to speak as a blog, which of course will have a bigger impact or as an individual um, remains to be seen. Because yeah, this thing is quite volatile and, and I don't really have the preview into what goes on in is it Yeah. So um, in a blog, let's say I take for example, like-minded developing group. So yes. they have maybe about 16, 17 countries. This is a number off my head. It's not the accurate number. So because developing countries do not have the ability to send so many negotiators, so one of the benefits of being in a blog is that you delegate. Um, so say um, this person from this country um, in that LMDC group attends, say, Article 6. And another one goes for adaptation. Another one goes for global go and finance and things like that. So then every end of the day, they will reconvene and then brief each other of what's going on. So in a way, you're helping each other cover as many grounds as possible because we're, a lot of those developing countries are not rich enough to send like 80 negotiators to cover every single meeting that happens at all at the same time. So that's one benefit of the block. Another thing is that it's a bit hard to say who speaks for Malaysia? Nobody speaks for Malaysia. It's it's a it's a how is it collective agreement. Like I said, there's no agreement until everyone else agrees, right? So what we have is actually someone who who's a spokesperson, someone who just goes out and say this is what the group has agreed. So they are not the leader. Oh. Yeah. So every so say for example, um, uh, yeah. So they are not. There's no leadership that's in the in any groups at all, whether it's the Umbrella Group or the G77 or ILAC and all that, they just have spokesperson. And spokesperson is only coming up to say what the group agrees to.
0: Mm, okay, okay, that's interesting. All right. Uh, yeah, that's just, that's just, that question is just purely for my uh, curiosity. Uh, but thank you for that. Okay. Uh, actually, we learned a lot today about uh, the climate negotiations and the agreements and all. It's a lot to take in, actually, but it's very interesting. So, I do hope that in the future, if we have more chances to talk about this, we take it. Right? That's, please say, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think with that we can wrap it up. We have um we we have answered all we've asked all the questions we wanted to ask. Uh so with that, we want to say thank you to Evelyn for answering our questions and answering our uh, you know tending to our curiosity, uh, <laughs> those questions that we actually feel if we ask we actually feel kind of stupid asking it, but no, yeah no
2: no not at all <laughs> i mean feel free to ask whatever that comes through your mind because i even i just joined this um, third world network in 2018 and mm. it was an extremely sharp learning curve for me because i'm not from a climate negotiation background it's one thing to be it's one thing to know about climate change. It's another thing to be in the climate negotiation. It's like a different reality altogether. And there's so many jargons, so many meetings, and oh it's it's just a world of its own. So no, no questions are stupid. I wish I have more of that kind of guidance when I joined because it was very, very stressful.
0: Mm, yeah, okay. Uh I actually, this is also for a, a personal question from me. How does it feel to actually go and um, sort of be in the action and join these negotiations?
2: I think it evolves for me throughout the years. And I mean, I didn't go for so many years, um, only two, right? So um, the COP, before it happens at the end of the year, they have the intercession um, in June. Intercession is just to try to do as much as possible and then be ready for like the actual cop so all in all i have four in the first when i joined it was in poland um and of course the place is huge and everybody seems to know where they're going and um there are a lot of meetings happening at the same time but at the same i i felt that as an observer ngo and especially as Third World Network, I'm kind of straddling between the two worlds. One is where, you know, people are in their coat and ties representing their countries, you know, negotiators, bureaucrats. And then on the other side, you have people who are youth, women, indigenous people who are also observers, but also they are having, you know, sometimes side events. Um, such as uh, talks and conferences and press statements and even demonstrations outside. So I see that two contrast happening all in one space and I can't help but to think what a world to be clashing. like outside there's a lot of pressure on where's the action, where is the transparency, where is the inclusiveness. And then the inside, in those walls, you have bureaucrats sitting down, you know, speaking very politically correct conversations. And you know, even when they disagree, they have to pick their words carefully. And then, you know, the way they say, Madam Madam Chair, I would like to intervene. You know, it's like, you know, all mm-hmm. like a, a stage. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I was trying to reconcile with that two worlds. And I do see them quite complementary of each other. So the next time when I actually was, in court for the second time in Madrid, um, I became more aware in terms of knowing where I should go, uh, knowing what the negotiators are talking and doesn't sound like Greek to me. And at the same time, I see how NGOs strategize uh, to grab the kind of press attention of the pressure that's mounting outside. So it is really a very, how to say, interesting experience for the lack of better words but also at the same time you ask yourself at the end of the day where are we going are we are we really going fast enough to do the things that we really need to do but at the same time um, I began to see that kind of imbalance power play that was happening so when I came there I thought okay everyone has the same cause we need to combat climate change we need to sit down and clear our differences but there's always this corporate um, presence that is pushing their agenda that's like you know, oil and gas and people like them that. that do not want to cut their emissions but roll out things like net zero, carbon offsets and all that so that they could keep polluting while finding creative ways to say, Yeah, I'm buying this credit so I am you know the I can justify my emissions. So you have that kind of uh, tension going on, and it's not as, as many as people would think it's a sacred process. I don't think it is anymore because it's so tainted with corporate interest.
0: Hmm. You mentioned women and in the indigenous just now, and you know, power imbalance and all that. Um, is, do you think there's enough women representation uh, in the co- uh, conference?
2: From what I read, um, it's never enough and it's still not enough. I mean, you start to, I think from maybe by the COP25, you'll see more women you know, taking the co-chair facilitator roles and all that. But over, overall, I think what I read before a long time ago was that there's still that kind of gender imbalance in there mm. in terms of representation, in, even in the UNFCCC secretariat itself. And also the negotiating, um, you know, uh, group from the, the countries that send. There are not enough women.
0: All right. Thank you for that. Okay. To um wrap up everything, uh, can you tell us and the listeners your favorite memory of going to COP? I think
2: my favorite memory is really getting the goosebumps when I see youth. Um, Planning for in fact it was unfolding in front of me. It was like, what do you call that? Um oh gosh. Something that people do impromptu but they actually plan it all along. What's it called again? Hmm? <laughs> oh my okay, but I, I get excited. the idea. <laughs> yes. So everyone just appeared and gather on the staircase and everyone just started chanting. And that energy was like amazing because they knew that they're going to get kicked out of the negotiating um, conference hall for doing that. You're not supposed to do that, but they do it anyways. And I like that spirit. Um, And I I feel that their presence have have grounded, for me, at least it grounded the whole conference for me from being a super bureaucratic, but important, of course, um, conference to something that, hey, there are people and lives And real worlds out that we are talking about, and we need to really, you know, get our act together.
0: That's that's nice. Um, It's very inspiring to hear you talk about this, and thank you so much for sharing with us a sliver of your experience there and knowledge there. Yeah, thank you so much, Tess. You want? Do you have anything else to say? No, not at all. Thank you so much Evelyn. We really appreciate you you know,
1: taking time off and coming on here and explaining to us all these terms and jargons. Yeah, We definitely have a better understanding now.
0: Uh, you have anything else you want to add before we uh, end everything?
2: Uh, no, but just to say very quickly that um, for COP26, we really hope to have a physical meeting rather than a hybrid. Because as you all know, even as we encounter tonight, we have you know, internet issues Mm. and and that would greatly compromise negotiation and having said that, um, I really hope all developing countries get their vaccines as soon as possible because if, you know, there's no one who's safe until everyone is safe so I wish the developed country would not block uh, the TRIPS waiver agreement that prevents um, the scaling up of vaccine production around the world, so but yeah, like I said, it's all connected to other issues as well. So whether the COP26 happened in person really depends on whether, how fast people are being vaccinated. And there is a lot of inequality happening around here. Mm-hmm. So having said that, um, I I'm I would say that I'm very encouraged that Kami is doing this podcast. And I'm very encouraged also to hear from your feedback that you are sort of learning from here. and and the fact that um, I did not confuse you guys. <laughs> so I'm happy to talk more about this on a separate you know, session or a workshop or anything. Just let me know and I'll be happy to do it. So how do you think that went? That was awesome. I think we managed to
1: learn so much. Yeah, Um, I think I honestly enjoyed this conversation.
0: Definitely. What do you think the key takeaway from today was? For me, I think the highlight was when she answered my question on who will hold these countries accountable. Uh, You know, I had that question for some time and I think it's a good reminder that at the end of the day, it goes back to how we each play our part and keep each other accountable. And she was very inspiring, so I loved it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was very, very motivating. Just to quickly summarise, today's episode was about climate negotiations. We talked about how these negotiations happened. And then we discussed Malaysia's role in playing a part in meeting these global targets. Um, That's all for today. If you like this episode and like what we do, don't forget to share the podcast. Thank you.